Hello, this is Dwayne McCrary. I'm the team leader for Adult Explore the Bible, and the purpose of this podcast is to give you some background information about the book of Isaiah. We'll be studying the book of Isaiah and Explore the Bible in the fall of 2020. I want to focus on three things during our time together. We're going to talk about the history that's in the background of the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at the structure of the book and themes that are found in the book. First of all, the history. The history in the background focuses on four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. All four of these kings are people that Isaiah had interaction with at some point during his life. First of all, Uzziah, he ruled over 50 years as king of Judah. During his time, it was fairly prosperous. Uh, They expanded the borders. They built uh, defenses around Jerusalem. Uh, They improved the army. All kinds of things happened that were very positive, but near the end of his reign, there's the winds of change on the horizon. Assyria had been led by some weaker kings during the time of Uzziah's reign, but that changed in 1745 when Tiglath-Pileser III became king over Assyria. His desire was to dominate the whole region. Uzziah died in 740 which was only five years after Tiglath-Pileser had become king of Assyria, and he really hadn't started his focusing his attention yet on Judah and Israel. Now the son of Uzziah becomes king. His name is Jotham. So he steps in as king and continues doing some building projects. He also has some military conquests, most notably over the Ammonites. Um, once again, Tiglath-Pileser is still in the background. He's a, starting to become a threat, but he's focused more on the north part of of the region away from Judah and Israel but that's going to change pretty soon. Jotham passes away and then Ahaz becomes king in 735. Now two kings you need to know also involved in Ahaz's life are the king of Israel which is Pekah and the king of Syria which is Rezin. They create a coalition in an effort to oppose Assyria but Ahaz says no to joining their coalition. Well, they organize an effort to take out Ahaz because their concern is that they may be fighting the Assyrians to the north and then will be fighting Ahaz and Judah to the south. So what Ahaz does, Ahaz finds out about it, and he goes to Tiglath-Pileser for help. But what this does for Judah is it makes them a vassal state of Assyria. And you begin to see Assyrian religious practices introduced into Judah. Eventually, you see human sacrifices being conducted in Jerusalem. We find that in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 3. Ahaz passes away, and Hezekiah becomes king in his place. Hezekiah was his son, and that happened in 715. Hezekiah reverses his father's policies. He begins a great deal of reform, religious reform. But not long into his reign, you have something called the Ashdod Revolt. This revolt was led by Ashdod and several other smaller countries that were a part of it, and they were vassals of Assyria as well. The king of Assyria at this point was Sargon II. Hezekiah chooses not to participate, which that buys him some time in some ways, gives him a break while Sargon is occupied with Ashdod. So that makes it possible for Hezekiah to focus on these religious reforms, the temple restoration. There's even an effort to try to restore the Passover during that time. But in 705, Sargon passes away, and Sennacherib becomes the king over Assyria. Hezekiah sees this as an opportunity to break from Assyria, so he withholds the tribute 
and Sennacherib, as you would imagine, is going to come and try to get it. Hezekiah Sennacherib is already in the Egypt. process of taking over much of Judah, and he has surrounded Jerusalem. And so here Hezekiah is. He is in a siege mode. And Sennacherib sends a note to Hezekiah, and in that note he mocks the God of Jerusalem. Hezekiah turns to God, and then God intervenes, chasing Sennacherib and his army all the way back to Assyria, and they would not return for 20 years. So you have these four kings, once again that's Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and all four of those kings are people that Isaiah related to in one way or another. Isaiah confronted these kings when they were making some of the decisions that I just shared, especially Ahaz and Hezekiah. Now let's look at how we would organize the book. In chapters 1 through 35, you have all these interactions between the kings and Isaiah as the kings face the threat of Assyria. So those are all things where you have Isaiah working as a prophet, delivering God's message to these men during these during that time period. He's delivering this God-given message for the situation that they're facing that day. In chapters 36 through 39, we then find a bridge where Isaiah recounts God's intervention and he introduces a new threat that's on the horizon and that threat's Babylon. In chapters 40 through 66, he then delivers prophecy. Instead of foretelling, he is now foretelling. He's looking into the future. He's looking at a time when Judah is going to be led off in exile, and he's sending a message to them while they're in exile. He talks about God's discipline. He talks about the purpose of captivity, of God wanting the people of Judah to understand that he alone was God, and that he desired to redeem his people to himself. In the middle of that, in the 40 through 66, you find one of the most compelling prophecies in all of the Old Testament that points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that's in Isaiah 53. And that points to this idea of God desiring to redeem his people. So let me give you a summary of that again. You have chapters 1 through 35, which is the interaction between kings who are facing Assyria and Isaiah. Then you have the bridge section, which is chapters 36 through 39, which recounts God's intervention and introduces Babylon. In chapters 40 through 66, you have prophecy that looks at how God's going to deal with his people while in exile and how God desires to redeem his people. Now let's think about the themes that we see here in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to identify four. God's sovereignty, the Holy One of Israel, servant, and promised Messiah. First of all, God's sovereignty. Isaiah is confident that the Lord is sovereign over the whole universe. By extension, then, he's also sovereign over all nations and over his covenant people. He could send his covenant people into captivity as discipline, and he could bring them out of exile and restore them. The second theme we see is the Holy One of Israel. We find Isaiah using this title more than 20 times in his book. This is more than a title. It's a revelation of God's nature. Isaiah wants us to understand that God alone is holy, he's set apart, and he is uniquely God. However, that God is also a covenant-making God. He reveals himself and his commands to his people as he calls them into a covenant relationship with him. That's why it's important for us to understand that it's not just the Holy One, it's the Holy One of Israel, the Lord of a covenant group of people. The third theme is that of servant. 
the theme of servant in Isaiah is so, it's multifaceted. Sometimes it describes an individual. Sometimes it's talking about the king's officials. It's talking about Israel collectively. But more importantly, ultimately, it's talking about the Messiah, the one who would come and be the suffering servant and be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Which leads me to the fourth theme, which is the promised Messiah. Think about some of these verses you find in Isaiah. Isaiah 7:14, we're told that there's a virgin who's going to bear a child, and that child's going to be called Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, we're told that there's going to be a Christ who's going to rule God's people, and he's going to have a kingdom that will never end. In Isaiah 11, we're told that Christ will be born in the human lineage of King David, yet he'll also display the Spirit of the Lord, which points to the idea that the Messiah will be full deity and full humanity. In Isaiah 53, we find a picture of the sacrificial death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he does that on behalf of sinners. So once again, those key themes, God's sovereignty, the Holy One of Israel, servant, and the promised Messiah. So how does all this fit into our world? Well, in Acts 8, we find Philip's encounter with an Ethiopian official. As Philip approached the official, he heard the man reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 53 to be exact. So Philip asked the official if he understood what he was reading. The official replied that he needed a guide to help him understand. Isaiah had told many years before of the one who would be pierced and crushed for our sins so that we could be healed by his wounds. The healing would be required because of sin. Isaiah points to a coming judgment against the Israelites because of that sin and the salvation God would provide to those who repented. That repentance would not come until after the Israelites were led away as captives. The exile was more than judgment. It was a purposeful discipline designed to help people understand their need for God. That realization would lead to repentance and a restored relationship with God. The book of Isaiah is filled with insights about the nature of God and our relationship with Him. Part of this relationship includes the promise of God reconciling His people to Himself. The message of Isaiah continues to be echoed today. We are sinners facing a sure judgment. The sovereign God disciplines us with a view towards repentance and relationship with Him through faith in His Son. As we study the book of Isaiah, we pray that each of us will discover the truth found by that Ethiopian official, that we are sinners in need of God's forgiveness, and that forgiveness is found only through the sacrificial death and resurrection of the promised servant of Isaiah 53, Jesus Christ, God's Son. May God bless us as we study the book of Isaiah during the fall of